0: Yeah, amen. Good morning, Life Church. It's great to see you. Great to be with you this morning. I'm glad that you're here. If you're in the room, I'm glad that you're here with us online. If you are online this morning, um, we need Luke chapter 1 together today. And so, if you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you, that's where we are going to be this morning. This is the second Sunday of the season that Christians historically celebrate as the season of Advent. Advent is a time of waiting and preparing. As we look back to the first coming of Christ and then look ahead again to the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And this Advent season, uh, we are looking in the Gospel of Luke at the ways that people respond to the news of Christ's first coming. Because what we see in Luke is that almost every turn, when people first learn the news of the first coming of Christ, they respond in song in worship. And what we said is at a very deep and fundamental level, that is the right response to the news of the coming of Christ into the world. When people encounter the reality that the infinite God made himself finite in order to come in human form and live and die and save us, the right response to that is worship. When people encounter the reality that the God who created all things by simply speaking them into being gave himself the frail crying voice of a human baby, the right response to that truth, to that reality is to worship him. And so that's what we've intended to just kind of set our minds and hearts on as we think about the gospel of Luke and the fact that in the first two chapters of Luke, people are constantly singing as they encounter the news of the fact that Christ has come. Last week, we looked at Mary's own song, Mary the mother of Jesus, at her song that she sang in response to the news of Christ's coming. Today, we're looking at Zachariah's song as he encounters and wrestles with that very same news. So I'm glad that we can do that in Luke chapter 1. In my extended family, in the, in the Sharp family, we have an unspoken rule against surprise Christmas gifts. Nobody in my extended family wants to be surprised on Christmas morning. So I'm talking about my parents and my brother and his family now and my aunts and my uncles and this is the way that it has just always been for that side of our family Um, Nobody likes to be surprised, and so we just try really hard not to surprise one another. The mechanics of that are pretty simple. Everybody in the family is expected to provide a written list of the things that they would like to receive for Christmas, and nobody ever deviates from the list. We stick to the list, and every once in a while, some poor, unfortunate soul will get added to our family, usually through marriage, and that person will not understand our unspoken rules and rhythms, and so they will attempt to surprise someone. They'll think, oh, it'll be nice. I have this great idea for so-and-so, and I'll, I'll give them that instead of the things that they've asked for, and, you know, those people are immediately shunned and not invited to subsequent Christmas gatherings because that's just not what we do. And because it's not what we do, nobody really knows how to react to receiving a gift that they haven't asked for. Like if they are actually surprised on Christmas morning, it's like they're, they're flabbergasted and they have no idea what the appropriate response to that is because the way my family gives gifts, the way we have always given gifts, we stick to the list, that's just what we do. And so when you receive a gift that you haven't asked for, when you receive a gift that you didn't already know that you wanted or already know that you needed, when you receive something that you didn't already value or desire, we just really don't know how to handle that. Now, Zechariah's song here in Luke 1, it confronts us with a priceless gift. That is not a gift that many people think that they need. It is not a gift that many people believe in advance that they want. It is not a gift that is on many Christmas lists. But it is a gift that is a precious treasure, a gift of priceless value. And so I want us to consider that this morning as we look at God's word together. Let me pray for us, and then we will jump into that. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would now come and illuminate the truth in this passage so that our limited minds can understand it and so that our weary and sometimes indifferent hearts can behold and worship you because of the truth that is here. We pray that you would stir our hearts this morning. We pray that you would cultivate in us renewed and deeper affection for Jesus. Help us today to see him as he is. In Christ's name, I pray those things. Amen. So, the song of Zechariah actually comes at the very end of Luke chapter 1, but to understand it, we have to go all the way back to almost the beginning of Luke 1 to the promise that the angel Gabriel made to Zechariah. And so, let's pick up the story. In Luke 1, starting in verse 5, Luke writes In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, the way that Luke describes Elizabeth and Zechariah is significant. He describes them in verse 6 saying that they were both righteous before God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That doesn't mean, of course, that Elizabeth and Zechariah were completely without sin. It simply means that they were Righteous, that they generally obeyed the commandments and the regulations of the law of the Lord. They were righteous people, but they had no child, verse 7 says. Now, I'm aware of the fact that there are some in our church family who can relate very directly to the experience of Elizabeth and Zechariah in this respect, Some who have longed for a spouse their whole lives so that with that spouse, they might have a child of their own, only for the Lord to never give them that spouse, and then others who have that spouse but who have never been able to conceive a child or to bring a child to full term. And so I know that there are some among us who relate very directly to the pain and the sorrow and the grief that Elizabeth and Zachariah surely experienced in being old and being barren and having no children. Others of us, even if we do have children, we can certainly imagine and relate to Elizabeth's pain, Zachariah's pain, because we love people who share their pain. We love those even in this church family who share their pain. And so this, this reality of their barrenness and their agedness, it's not a complete mystery to us. We can understand their grief, their sorrow, and we can also understand the joy that surely stirred in Zechariah's heart when the angel Gabriel came from the Lord and appeared to him and announced to him that he was going to have a son. Now we see when when Gabriel appears to Zechariah that the first thing he says to Zechariah is that Zechariah need not be afraid. And of course, Gabriel wouldn't say that if Zechariah wasn't afraid. And that's a consistent theme in the Gospel of Luke when angels appear. Everybody's terrified by that experience, which tells me that the angels that we're talking about here are not like the precious moments, naked baby kind of cuddly angels that we often picture in our culture. Rather, they are majestic and glorious and terrifying beings. But when this being, Gabriel, appears before Zechariah, he commands him not to be afraid. Look at verse 12. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel Gabriel, and fell upon him, and fear fell upon him, excuse me. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Now, if the angel Gabriel can be trusted, if he can walk the talk that he is talking, if he is a man of his word or an angel of his word, and if he can deliver on the good news that he is promising, then this is indeed a reason to rejoice. This is exactly what Zechariah and Elizabeth have been longing for for decades. But to Zechariah, it actually seems too good to be true. Skip ahead to verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now we fast forward ahead in the story nine months later And everything that Gabriel has promised has been fulfilled in its time. Elizabeth has given birth to the son that Gabriel promised she would give birth to. We can flip a page in your Bible and skip ahead to verse 57 now where Luke describes that. He says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And so we can imagine, just as before we could imagine Elizabeth's pain, now we can imagine how sweet this moment would have been when after all of these years, she's finally holding in her own arms her own son. And she's not experiencing that on her own, right? Verse 50, it says that her neighbors and relatives heard of the great mercy that the Lord had shown her. And so they gathered around her and rejoiced with her. And so like the whole community has turned up and there's this party because Elizabeth, finally, she has a son. But then some controversy arises. Verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. Now when Kristen and I were naming our four children, uh, we made a deliberate decision when we decided on a name, and by the way, Kristen, we're standing up here, she would clarify when I decided on a name and informed her of our mutual decision, we would agree that we weren't going to share that name with anybody until the child was actually born. And we did that simply because uh, we didn't want any lip service from our family and friends who didn't like the names that we picked for our kids. And we just figured it would be a lot harder for them to tell us that they didn't like the name we had picked for our kids if they were like, you know, holding that baby in their arms at the very same time. And so we just waited. We didn't tell anybody, not because it was a big secret, but just because we didn't want to deal with their pushback if they didn't like the name we chose. Well, that strategy does not seem to be working for Elizabeth here, does it? Right, this, is, this is what happens in the ancient world when a child, especially a son, is born. On the eighth day, that son in Israel is circumcised and named. Now, we don't need to get into what goes into a Jewish circumcision ceremony this morning. If you really have burning questions about that, I'm sure Pastor Matt will be available to you after the service is over to illustrate that for you any way that you need it illustrated. But the point that we need to hold on to today is the fact that it's when a boy is circumcised, that he is named. And you notice that everybody in Elizabeth's community just assumes that the boy's name will be Zachariah after his father, because that's tradition. The oldest son in a family would receive the father's name so that he could continue that name on into the generations. Surely this child is going to be Zechariah's only child, his only son. If his name is going to continue, it will be because this boy is given that very same name. But Elizabeth won't have it. Everybody else just assumes it's going to be Zechariah. She says his name is John. She doesn't say Let's consider John. She doesn't say, maybe we'll name him John. She says very definitively and clearly, his name is John, which riles everyone up, right? They're confused, they're concerned, and so they turn to Zechariah. Now, I want you to think for a moment about what this whole experience has been like for Zechariah. Right? Not that a husband ever really contributes all that much during a pregnancy to begin with, save for his one obvious contribution. But Zechariah has been basically invisible in the narrative of Luke's gospel since that fateful encounter with the angel Gabriel. Since the moment Gabriel shut up Zachariah's mouth, we have not seen him or heard from him in any way in this story. He's been invisible. Even just the few verses we've read already today, right? he's not there. Verse 57 and following, they tell us that it's Elizabeth who gives birth. It's Elizabeth who has a son. And it's Elizabeth's neighbors and Elizabeth's relatives who gather around her to rejoice with her because they have heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her. And it's like Zachariah is not even a part of this equation. He's barely mentioned. But now the focus shifts away from Elizabeth and back to him. Read verse 62. And they made signs to his father, to Zechariah, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And we should note just a few quick things here. First of all, it's clear that Zechariah still is not speaking, right? However, If you go back to earlier in chapter 1, when Gabriel was rebuking Zechariah for his lack of faith, Gabriel said to Zechariah, you won't say a word until your son is born. Well, this is the eighth day. This baby's been kicking and screaming for a while now, but still, Zechariah isn't speaking. What's going on there? It's another thing to note. Notice the fact that they made signs to his father. Zechariah not only isn't speaking, he's not hearing either. In addition to being mute, he is also deaf because of the pronouncement that Gabriel made over him. And so for the whole nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, he has said nothing and heard nothing. They made signs to him, inquiring what he wanted the baby to be called, verse 63. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So after nine months of silence, nine months of not hearing anything, the first thing that he says, the first thing that he uses his tongue and his mouth to do, he blesses God he worships God. And that worship, that blessing, that's the song that's recorded beginning in verse 67 through the end of the chapter. We're going to look at it in a minute. But just notice a few more things. Verse 64, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. 65, and fear came on all their neighbors. This is a big deal. This isn't a casual thing. This isn't something that just happens. Fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about. Notice how the word all just keeps coming back. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now let's consider two things here before we move on to Zechariah's song. The first is about John. The second is about Zechariah. So first, about John. What we're supposed to note is that the unusual circumstances surrounding his birth and surrounding the name that this boy is given, they signify the fact that this is an unusual boy. right? He is a special individual. He's not ordinary There's something significant going on here. He's so special, in fact, that he could not be conceived by ordinary means. He had to come to aged, barren parents, and he's so special that an ordinary name could not describe fully who he is. Right, His identity can't be described by simply saying that he is the son of his parents. He's not just the son of Zechariah. That doesn't fully describe John's identity and his role in the story that is unfolding. No, he's John. He's distinct. He's special. Because he is the chosen prophet who will prepare the way for Jesus. And, and that's why everybody... Stirs. That's why everybody kind of gets riled up again. That's why all of the country and all of the neighbors and all of the people are talking about this and why verse 66 asks that question. They're saying in their hearts, what then will this child be? Again, it's not who will this child be? He's John. But what will this child be? Right? What role will he play? What significance will he have? Because everybody recognizes that it's going to be something special given the way this child came to old parents and the way he has this unusual name. So that's what we learn about John here. Let's talk about the more significant piece, what we learn from Zechariah. Can you imagine nine months of absolute silence? I mean, I struggle to imagine nine minutes of absolute silence, to be honest. Um, Nine months of absolute silence, that seems crazy. Yet that is exactly what the Lord used to cultivate in Zechariah a deeper and fuller trust in his character, in his promises, and in his ways. I mean, think about Zechariah at the beginning of chapter one. He's righteous he's obedient, but if we're honest, his view of God is too small. He hears the promise from Gabriel saying that he's going to have a son and he just can't believe it because in his mind, Elizabeth is too old, Elizabeth is too barren. It's just not possible, he says, he thinks. He doesn't believe God can do it or he doesn't believe that God will do it. But now, after nine months of silence, Zechariah is a man who is full of faith. He spent those months reflecting on the word of God and the work of God. He's now marked by an obedient trust in who God is. I think that's why, why the, the timing of when he finally begins to speak again is so unusual and significant there, right? It wasn't enough just for, for John to be born. John had to be born, and then Zechariah had to act in faithful trust about the coming of John. And so it's not until he speaks, his name is John, which is what the angel Gabriel told him to name the child. It's then that he's able to, you know, have his tongue loosed and his ears unstopped. It's not just belief that God was cultivating in Zechariah. Even the demons believe. It's belief plus faithful, obedient trust. And it was in that season of silence and quiet that the Lord cultivated that kind of faith and trust in the heart of this priest. That's why I think a critical point of application from this part of the story is that we need to understand that faith is always cultivated better in trial and in silence than it is in noise or prosperity. Faith that's always cultivated better in trial and silence than it is in noise or in prosperity. Think, I mean, just think about silence for a moment. If we don't seek silence... if we don't look for opportunities to be still and to quiet ourselves before the Lord, then I am convinced that we will not grow in our ability to appreciate and understand how the Lord is working in our lives or through his word. If our lives are always full of noise, if our screens are always on, if we don't remove ourselves from the hustle and bustle to still ourselves in quietness before the Lord, then we probably will not be gripped by who the Lord is. We probably will not be moved by the character of the Lord and the work of the Lord in our lives. Because we don't just, we just won't appreciate those things in noisy and busy lives the way that we can. In silence. In silence, and in the spiritual reflection that silence affords us, we can begin to perceive the small, subtle ways that God is working. We can begin to treasure his still, small voice in Scripture. We can begin to get a sense of what the Puritans called his felt presence. Right? It took Nine months of silence for Zachariah to come to the point where he was moved from fear-filled doubt to faith-filled obedience and trust. But it was precisely through the silence that the Lord cultivated those things in him. And so I just ask you this morning, I mean, what might the Lord cultivate in your life if you created a space to listen to him, in his word, to still yourself before him, to walk in the discipline of silence before the Lord. And then don't forget trials, because that was a significant part of this for Zachariah as well. I mean, the Lord's hand of discipline in Zechariah's life, I'm sure, heavy for those nine months. Now, I want to, I'm eager to, Make sure that we understand the distinction between discipline and punishment because it is a significant one when we think about this. Uh, For a man like Zechariah, and for you today, if you are in Christ, right? If you are genuinely a believer in Jesus, if you've been born again and made regenerate by the Holy Spirit's work in your life, then the good news is the Lord will not and shall not and even cannot punish you for your sin because he has already done that. Right? Jesus Christ on the cross bore the full penalty of and punishment of your sins. And so for God to punish you for your wrongdoing in your life would be unjust of God. It would be like he was charging you twice for the same transaction. He doesn't need to punish you again because he's already punished Jesus fully for your sin. And so we need never fear that God will punish us But we should be aware that God will discipline us the way a father disciplines his children. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that God's discipline in our lives is actually confirmation of the fact that we are his children. Because fathers don't discipline people who aren't their children, they only discipline the children that they love. And so when we experience the Lord's discipline in our lives, that's an indication that we truly are his children. But I just want you to think this morning about the discipline that Zechariah experienced and endured from the hand of the Lord as he waited these nine months in silence. I mean, I'm sure Zechariah felt tremendous shame over the fact that it was his doubt, his lack of faith that consigned him to deafness and muteness. But I'm sure that as Zechariah served alongside his fellow priests, he was ashamed. I'm sure that as Zachariah went home and attended to his husbandly responsibilities with Elizabeth, I'm sure he was ashamed. And then think about all the things that Zechariah missed out on because he couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. I mean, he didn't get to hear Elizabeth's voice when she celebrated for the first time that at last she was expecting a child. He didn't get to hear Elizabeth's labor pains and he did not get to hear the cry of his baby boy when he inhaled his first breath and exhaled that cry upon his entrance into the world. I mean, zechariah he missed out on so many things in that period of silent suffering. Right, that discipline, it was hard and it was heavy in his life. But we just need to realize that God does far more in our lives through those hard and heavy seasons of discipline than he ever does through our prosperity. Right, God uses his heavy hand to cultivate in our hearts trust in him. He uses what we experience as setbacks and failures. What we find to be painful moments, seasons of loss, and seasons of grief in our lives, he uses those things to show us that he is faithful, to teach us to trust him, to teach us that he is enough for us. And that's what Zechariah illustrates to us. I mean, just think about how full of faith he is, how big his view of God is now, simply because. God walked him through this season of silence and of trial under his heavy hand of discipline. All right, now let's think for just a few moments today about the song that grew in Zachariah's heart during those nine months of silence. Like Mary's song last week, Zechariah's song this week is full of echoes of the Old Testament like Mary's song last week, Zechariah's song this week is a response to the birth of a child or the promise of a child. Unlike Mary's song, however, Zechariah's song actually says very little about his own child. It's really only verses 76 and 77 that say anything specifically about John, the son that's just been born to him. Rather, Zechariah's song is a fuller celebration of the saving work of God that he is beginning to witness. And so let's read just a few. We'll read all of it, but let me just pick out a couple of things that we should wrestle with this morning from this song. Start in verse 67. And his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, here's his song, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. We point out two things there. First of all, notice that Zachariah is speaking. He's singing in the past tense, even though these are things that are still happening or will continue to happen. That's how full of faith he is at this point. He is able to speak about these things as if they are certain, even though they haven't happened yet. And then notice the fact that Zachariah says that God has visited and redeemed his people. Right, Zechariah understands that the coming of Jesus Christ into the world means that God is not far, but he is near. He is not distant, but he is present because he has visited and redeemed his people. How has God done that? Let's keep reading. He says in verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, just let me point out a couple things on a high level. First of all, notice how confident is Zechariah is that God is keeping his promises. He mentions God's promises to Abraham, the oath that God swore to Abraham. That's from Genesis chapters 12 and 15 when God promised to Abraham that through Abraham's offspring, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Zechariah is saying that's happening right now because of the coming of Jesus Christ. Right now, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through a descendant of Abraham. But he also singles out the promises God made to David when God promised to raise up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Zechariah is specifically there alluding to the fact that God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a king would sit on throne forever and ever and ever from David's family line. So Israel, they've been expecting for generations now that a king from David's family line would come and liberate them and redeem them and reign over them in perfect righteousness and peace. That's why the prophet Isaiah said, the government will be upon Messiah's shoulder and he will be a mighty God and a wonderful counselor and an everlasting father and a prince of peace because the whole Old Testament was looking forward coming of this king. And Zechariah, he's saying that king, he's here. Right? God is keeping his promises, not just to Abraham, not just to David, but to all of us because he's raising up a horn of salvation for us. Now, what in the world does that mean? Right? What is a horn of salvation? To understand that, we have to kind of look back to the Old Testament, where in the prophets and in the Psalms, An animal's horn is often described as a symbol of that animal's strength and power. For almost 20 years, Kristen and I, we lived in the high plains of West Texas. And if you have not driven Interstate 40 quite that far west, um, you might not know that West Texas is as flat as the top of your dining room table. There are no trees. There are no hills. There are no mountains. It is just flat, and that means that when you're driving down the highway, the horizon in front of you, I mean, it it looks like it's forever away, and all you can see is ground and sky. I mean, it's just really a remarkable thing to behold. The other thing that you just need to know about West Texas if you ever visit is the fact that it is the home of the majority of our country's beef industry, right? and so there are cattle yards and feedlots there that are just massive in their size and their scope. Lots and lots and lots of cows being fattened up and transitioned into hamburger in West Texas. And the, the closest of those cattle yards to our house was really about 60 miles away. It's not like we lived right in the middle of them, but still, because there are no trees and no mountains and no hills to get in the way. Right, if the wind shifted and was just coming to you from the wrong direction, right, you could smell every one of those tens of thousands of head of cattle even inside your home if you lived in West Texas. It was just a part of life there. The locals called it the smell of money right, because it was a major economic driver in the region. Anyway, I knew for the years that we lived in West Texas that we were surrounded by lots of cattle, but that didn't really impress me until one year I took my sons to the county fair that was in the area and I was able to lay my eyes for the first time on a prize-winning cow and a prize-winning steer. And it was that steer especially that really caught my eye because that animal was just absolutely enormous. I mean, its, its shoulder was above my head and its neck was like the size of a barrel and the, the wingspan or horn span of its horns was greater than you know, the tips of the distance between the tips of my two hands. I mean, these horns were just enormous. And I remember standing by its pen, looking at this steer and thinking, man, I sure hope that dude doesn't get angry. Because if he gets angry, there's no way in the world that pen is gonna hold him in. And there's nothing here at this entire fair that could stop that guy if he went on a rampage. Those horns, they were just this very clear picture of his power, of his strength. And that's the image that Zechariah grabs a hold of when he describes here the saving work of our God. Right? The Christmas image that I'd love for you to grab onto as you think about Zechariah's song today. It's not an image of a frail baby in a manger though that is a beautiful and sweet image itself. It's an image of an animal with massive, powerful, strong horns. Because what Zacharias celebrates is the mighty saving strength of our God. He celebrates the fact that our God is mighty to save. He celebrates the fact that his redemptive plan, it is powerful. And he says that it's coming to fulfillment now because the Christ child has come. He calls us to behold the formidable saving power of our God, because our God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, how is he going to save us? He goes on to describe that. He talks about the ministry of his son, John, verses 76, 77. He says, and you, child, talking to John will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins he's saying about the ministry of his own son that John will go before christ to announce that salvation has come and that forgiveness of sins is possible through the life and the death and the resurrection of jesus and then he adds There's one more picture that just stirred my affection for the Lord this week as I thought about it. God's gonna do all of that, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the image that Zechariah has here, it's like imagine a people wandering through the desert at night and they're just completely lost because the desert at night is as black as black can be. It's as dark as dark can be. And they can't, they can't find their way. They can't see. They're hopeless. And they're just praying that they can hold on until morning when the sun rises and they might be able to see their way home. And he says, because the Lord, the God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people, because the Lord has raised up this horn of salvation, the sun is rising. The sun sun rises visiting us from on high and is giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. What Zachariah is celebrating is the fact that after darkness comes light those who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Isaiah 9 says. He's pointing to the fact that because of the tender mercy of God, God is making a way home. He's showing us the path to peace. And I pray this Advent season that you would consider and hold on to and celebrate the light that is shining in the person of Jesus. A year ago, had you offered me an unlimited supply of toilet paper and Lysol spray, I would not have appreciated that gift. Today, at the end of 2020, if you offered those things to me, I would think twice and probably take them gladly and find a way to cram all of that into my garage for a season, because we've seen in 2020 the value of those gifts. If you rolled up to my house, and knocked on my door and offered to lend me your chainsaw, I would think that was a rather strange offer until I saw the tree fallen over in my front yard. And if, as we were walking out the doors in a little bit, you came up to me and offered to take me to the ER, I would think, again, that was a strange invitation unless I happened to notice that there was like a massive gash on my arm. So it is, in all of life, We do not appreciate or value gifts that meet no needs or satisfy no desires. We do not love or value an offer for help if we don't feel that we're in danger. We do not love or value a gift that is offered unless that gift meets some need that we've already identified in ourselves. Vast numbers of people Look at the visitation of Christ and at Christmas like an unsolicited trip to the ER or a random offer of toilet paper. They don't know or understand the terminal illness of unforgiven sin. They don't feel the pain of their estrangement from their holy Creator God. They don't believe that apart from Christ, they stumble in the darkness. And so for them, the horn of salvation, it means nothing. It has little value. Brothers, sisters, may that not be true of us. May we treasure the gift of Christ, the gift that we need, the gift that we are lost without. And treasuring that gift, may we, like Zechariah, praise God for visiting and redeeming his people. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would cultivate in our hearts praise this morning. May we rightly understand and consider who Jesus is and all that you've done for us for Jesus and raising a horn of salvation for us. As we consider that, as we see that, as we behold him, May we respond in praise and in worship, God. Help us in our hearts and with our lives to treasure how truly great you are. And may we be moved to sing and to praise you in response to that. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.